Well, good morning again. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all you do for this church. Before we get started with Nathan, I'd like to uh, take a moment for a short prayer. I think we're going to need it. So please bow with me. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together with these brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity to, to study by you and glean from that what, what we can. We thank you for your son in Jesus' name. Oh, wait. Um, Robbie wanted me to, to tell y'all that Dima's dad is having surgery Tuesday. Dean Crafton, he is having an aerobic aneurysm repair at the UAB in Birmingham on Tuesday. So let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. Dear Lord, we, we, we pray that you watch over Mr. Craftsman and and the family, and that the aortic surgery will, will go well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, a couple of things before we delve into this. Uh, Nahum is not a happy book. It's not a happy book at all. So, um, I used to tell tell my accounting students and uh, when I was teaching that I said, you know what, so sometimes on these cold nights I get, get in bed pull the comforter up over me and I might have a, a glass of wine or a glass of water on the table next to me and I reach over and I get my accounting book and I begin to read and one of the students said, do you really do that? No, I don't. But so Nahum is is not. Uh, I, I would suggest reading this book uh, right before bed. But it, it it tells us a lot about what we need to know about God's justice. So let's uh, let's delve into this. According according to some scholars. Of the book of Nahum was written between 1663 BC and 612 BC. Those are the earliest and latest possible dates that the book could have been written. Uh, they reflect the capture and fall of Phoebus in 663, and they reflect the announcement of Nineveh's certain destruction in 612. The name Nahum is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book, but nowhere else in the Bible. Be a nice uh, religious trivia question with it. It's mentioned along with his hometown, Elkos. It's as though Nahum had one mission, one mission, and that was to go to the Ninevites and Tell them of the Lord's coming judgment. Nahum's name in Greek means comforter. No comfort for the Ninevites, though, as we'll see. 
chapter one of uh, the only three chapters in the book. Chapter one is about the, the coming of the Lord in judgment. Chapters two and three describe in vivid detail, and I mean vivid detail, the, the destruction of Nineveh, the fall of Nineveh. The book ends with an epitaph, I am against you, saith the Lord of hosts. Nineveh's first mentioned in Genesis 10, verses 11 and 12, it was the capital of Assyria and located about 220 miles north uh, of the modern Iraqi capital Baghdad. It was built near the Tigris River with the Kosher River running through it. There, were great, there was great wealth in Nineveh, but there were also greatly feared armies there. Greatly feared. In fact, God often used the Assyrians to quash his people. He said, Assyria is the root of mine anger. It was the wicked people of Nineveh, though, who were known for their violence, showing no mercy to their enemies, that God sent Jonah to preach a hundred years before Nathan. Uh, the map, Nineveh is right here. The darker green is the Assyrian Empire in 824 BC, and the lighter is the Empire in 871 BC. Another uh, town we're going to talk, city we're going to talk about briefly, is Judah down there. The main takeaway from the book of Nahum is the impending judgment. Nahum reminds us not only of God's mercy and his love for us, but also his wrath for those who disobey him. God loves those who follow him and administers justice to those who do not. The book of Nahum is about God's justice. There was also, as I mentioned, a, a message of hope for Judah in the book, in the Nahum. Um, in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Although Nahum preached, uh, prophesied against Nineveh, God was reassuring the people of Judah who were faced with the terrifying power of the Assyrian armies. Uh, and he said to them, O Judah, keep thy solemn feast. Perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. Now, I imagine that was quite comforting for Judah. But, however, in Amos 2, 4 and 5, tells of the destruction of Judah. In 586 BC, apparently Judah fell to the same judgment as Nineveh did. Nahum has little to say about Judah, and he doesn't address any punishments or promises of peace. Instead, He's absorbed with the pending judgment of Nineveh. So we can't talk about Nineveh. We can't talk about Nahum without talking about Jonah. Jonah is my favorite minor prophet. I mean, anybody that gets swallowed by a fish 
you have to be, you have to think, you know, they got something going for them. So just a brief, brief note on Jonah. Uh, God instructed Jonah, uh, it was another minor prophet, to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah was afraid to go. He was afraid of the, 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 the brutal armies there, and he didn't like the Ninevites anyway. So he tried to hide from God. He boarded a ship to a country called Tarsh, and on the way he was thrown into the angry sea by the sailors on the ship, and then swallowed by the great fish. For three days and three nights, he was in the belly of the fish. And he agreed, he agreed to go to Nineveh and preach. I would agree to almost anything to get out of that fish. Now, during his, his preaching, the Ninevites repented. And God saved them from death and destruction. God said, the men of Nineveh shall stand upon the judgment of this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Flash ahead a hundred years to the book of Nathan. Nineveh is once more in sin. The leaders are sinful. They have turned to sin and the Lord called Nahum to go there and assure them of their just punishment. There was no repentance. He was not going for their salvation. He was going to assure them of their just punishment. So in the book of Jonah, God forgave Nineveh, but in the book of Nahum, he announces and executes Nineveh's doom. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I'll burn the chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour their young lions. I will cut off thy prey from the earth. The voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. All this because Nathan, I'm sorry, all this because Nineveh sold herself to the enemies of God. The beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty that taught them to worship her false gods, bewitching people everywhere. No wonder I stand against you, said the Lord. And now all the earth shall see your nakedness and shame, I will cover you with filth and show the world how really vile you are. All those who see you and shrink will shrink back in horror. Nineveh lies in utter ruin and no one anywhere regrets it. It's as if God was saying, enough is enough. Enough is enough. I've had it. Those are my words. There were also some uh, several prophets that uh, spoke of Nineveh's destruction. We'll, men 
<coughs> mentioned too, Jeponiah said, and he shall stretch out his hands against thee and destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation and dry like the wilderness. Zechariah said, and he shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves of the sea and all the deeps of the river will dry up and the pride of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. Now these next two, uh, these next several verses uh, are a little rocky. So hang on. Uh, they describe the actual, or part of the actual uh, judgment and destruction. Nineveh became known as the bloody city. The evil Assyrians slaughtered her prey like a vicious lion, and there were unspeakable acts of cruelty. As a regular practice after battle, hundreds of people were taken away and tortured. Hands and ears were cut off, and much, much, even much more savage treatment was carried out by the Assyrians. Woe to the bloody city, it's full of lies and robbery. This, uh, these verses, one through four in chapter three, I, I think read almost like a poem, which is kind of ironic given all that was going on in Nineveh and all the deaths and stuff. Well, you can see what you think. Woe to the bloody city, it is full of lies and robbery. The prey does not depart, depart, the noise of a whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the preaching, prancing horses, the jumping chariots, the horseman lifts up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there is a multitude of slain and great number of carcasses and there is no end to their corpses and they stumble over their corpses. All because of the multitudes all because of the multitude of the hordes of the well-favored harriet, harlot, sorry, the mistress of witchcrafts, the sales nations through her hordes and families through her witchcrafts. I prefer to think of that as idolatry. Behold, I am against thee, said the Lord of hosts, and I will discover your skirts above your face, and I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon you and make you vile and set you up as grazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon you shall flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where is her comfort? Make no mistake about God's judgment. All right, so we move through that. The storm of the destruction of Nineveh's past for this sermon. So I want to talk about what happened to Nineveh. And this is really the point I want to make, these next couple of slides. What happened to Nineveh? during those hundred years since Jonah preached there. And is there any correlation to today? Are we headed down that same road? 
Did the people become complacent? Did they drift away from the worship of God's Word? Did indifference replace passion? Do we see any of this today? And this did generations of once followers of God fail to school their children in the gospel, thus furthering its widening of the gap of indifference? Have we as a nation become more tolerant of those who deny God or those who act in ways that are far from God's word? Do we see that on the news almost every night? Do we see that in the laws passed by our legislators? Are we as a nation or a city becoming complacent, slowly drifting away from God? A Gallup study discovered that only 47% of our members of the church, although 76% of Americans were church members back in 1947. Membership has been on the decline since at least 1988. Membership in the Churches of Christ declined by approximately 12% over the period from 1980 through 2007. It occurred to me the other day that these are kind of dated stats. So I looked up some more recent ones and Unfortunately, the presentation had already gone to press, so I couldn't change it. But here are some of a 2021 Gallup poll revealed that the Christian church membership in the U.S. had fallen below 50% for the first time. COVID maybe? For other reasons? It went on to, to say there's been a seven point decline in church membership from 79% in 1998-2000 to 72% now. So what, what, what are we to do? Well, this looks like this trend continuing down and down about church membership. How do we restore the church? How do we get the people back in the pews? How do we get them back in Sunday school so their kids will learn about the gospel? We go back to the early church and we see how they grew. How did the early church grow? They grew by hearing and preaching the gospel. They grew by being united in the cause of Christ. Denominationalism is contrary to what God prayed for and died for. They grew by being evangelistic. Therefore, they went everywhere preaching to the world. Now, I don't know, I don't think that we go out on the street corners and preach, although it's occurred to me sometimes to get a megaphone and get Lola with me and go out there and 
preach the gospel a little bit. Um, but we can always communicate with our brothers and sisters here at, at Lindsley. We can always go say hello to these new visitors that come in or others that we may not know. I don't do that. I'm, I'm the worst at that. I'd rather talk. We talked to Southerspeel this morning about how we go talk to our friends. And we haven't seen them in a week and a football game has come and gone. So we need to talk about all that. But we also need to talk to these brothers and sisters that are here with us. I'm going to make a pledge to be better at that. They grew by overcoming internal and external conflict. I don't know of any internal conflict with the Lindsley Avenue Church of Christ, but there is certainly external conflict in the churches otherwise. And they grew by never giving up. Persecution of the church by Herod and Acts 12 is an example. So, one slide left, but before we get to that, we've been through the, the battles and trying to figure out what's going on with these churches and memberships and so on. It's time for a little refreshing scripture, I think. So there's one verse in Romans, Romans 15, uh, 15, 13, that says, down, this is, um, the blessings, this scripture is about the blessings of believing. I don't have it in there. The blessings of believing. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in, in living, and you may be abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Now more than ever, is the time to avoid complacency, indifference, and come to the church with an attitude of recommitment and a passion for God's teaching. If you feel like you've drifted away from God or if you are in need of uh, baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, now is the time. Today is the day. You can join me and your other brothers and sisters down front in a time of recommitment to live and worship according to God's word. You're welcome to come down for prayer and reassurance as we stand and as we sing. <laughs>